Turn with me to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. <clears throat> Tonight we are going to read verses 12 through chapter 34, verse 8. A lot of this is really a unit, so we at least want to read all of these verses to understand what's happening, what all is going on. This is one of the most amazing passages of Scripture. This, this particular passage is where Moses asks of the Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord, he grants Moses his request. The backdrop of that is very important for us to understand as to why Moses is asking such a request by the Almighty God. Why would he ask the Lord after everything that he has seen prior to this? Why would he ask him, show me your glory? What a request that that is. A request that I wonder if many of us have prayed ourselves. As we are praying and we are entering into the throne room of grace, do we pray, Lord, show me your glory? It's a very bold request. But a request, nonetheless, that Moses had asked, the Lord had granted. And through this whole exchange, we see the, the character and the very nature of God put on display it's very interesting that as Moses asks of the Lord, show me your glory, the Lord doesn't show him some great manifestation of his presence, but he speaks his name and he declares his name to Moses because it's in the very name of God that we see the glory of God. Not in great visible manifestations as we've talked about before, the Christian faith is not visibly driven it is driven by what we know of God and here the veil is peeled back for us to gaze upon the glory of God in the very name of God that his his character is is presented to Moses and we are privileged to to also see and to know what God claims about himself you know, it's interesting Moses has seen the great plagues that God has brought upon Egypt. He saw it. He saw how the Lord had parted the Red Sea. What great might and strength that the Lord has. What great power. He saw how the Lord made a manifestation of himself in, in the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. How the Lord by his very power, had caused water to come out of the rock when Moses had struck it. How every morning that they would wake up, the Lord had provided manna for them. The Lord had provided quail for them. And after all of that, still Moses says, show me your glory. Show me what you're like. Let me... Let me see the innermost being of your, your nature and your character. You know, that's the very goal of everything that, that happens in the service and behind this pulpit. It's not about trying to present to anyone a great sermon. 
It's not about trying to follow any specific kind of a guideline to give you a three-point sermon or a two-point sermon or whatever the case is. The goal of every person that stands behind this pulpit is to lay before you the greatness of God so that we leave out of here saying, wow, that, what a great sermon, but rather we say, what an amazing God. That's the goal of everything that happens here. For us to have the glory of God laid before us through the pages of Scripture. And tonight, this passage that we are going over is, is needful for us to understand, of course, not only because of what it says about God and what it declares about God, but because this is referenced also in the New Testament as we've been going over. The very passage that we read, opening passage tonight in Romans 9, it's referenced again in 2 Corinthians, because in this particular event, this is when Moses comes down from the mountain, having been in the presence of God, and Moses has to veil his face because his face is shining with the Shekinah glory of God, reflecting the glory of God. And so it is needful for us to look at this passage that when we see those references in the New Testament, we know exactly where it came from. There's some very interesting things that God says about himself and the implications of what he says that is very, very applicable to us, and hopefully, I pray, and gives us an even greater understanding of the majesty of our God. So if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word, and we will begin in Exodus chapter 33, verse 12, and we will read through chapter 34, verse 8. Let us give our attention to the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. Verse 12, Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us, so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the uh, face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now the Lord said to Moses, Moses, 
Cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered. So be ready by morning, and come up in the present and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of that mountain. So he cut out two stone tablets like the former ones. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went to Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him. And he took two stone tablets in his hand. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. Let's pray together. Father, we again come into your presence and we ask and we beseech you, Lord, that the Spirit of God would give us an even greater understanding of your character and your nature through this passage of Scripture. Father, be glorified in your people this day and bless the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> A very extraordinary request that Moses makes of the Lord. Show me your glory. Very bold a thing for Moses to say, or Moses to request. But if we understand the backdrop of this, then it will hopefully help us to understand why Moses is asking what he is and the very name of the Lord that is proclaimed to him. Now, we remember that the children of Israel, as Moses is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, that the children of Israel are at the bottom of the mountain. Moses is delayed too long, and so they go to Aaron, and they say to Aaron, Moses' brother, make us a god. And so Aaron has them to take all their, their jewelry, all their gold, everything. He, he takes all the gold, he throws it uh, in the fire, he melts it down, he forms this golden calf, and they begin to worship it. They begin to call it Yahweh, Jehovah. They don't call it by another name as far as any of the gods that they had known from Egypt. They call it Yahweh. And they are, they are down there uh, committing such gross idolatry as Moses is up on the mountain with the Lord. And so the Lord says to Moses, leave me alone and let my anger burn against my people. Look at what they're doing. And so Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. And the Lord does not bring swift judgment upon them. But when Moses does come down from the mountain and he sees what the people are doing, he throws the tablets down, he shatters the tablets, he makes the people take the golden calf, they, they melt it down and he makes, them, he makes them drink it. And then what also happened was that Moses in chapter 32 
He says in verse 25, Now when Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. He said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from, the gate, from gate to gate in the camp and kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Interestingly, if you really look at what had happened, this is a very small judgment that the Lord brings upon them. Though 3,000 people had died, he could have brought swift judgment and annihilated them all. But because of his namesake, because of his faithfulness, because of his promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob, he did not do so. So he tells Moses, beginning in chapter 33, he says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and all the people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, and the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, because you are an obstinate people, and I might destroy you on the way. So the Lord says to Moses, I'm not going. Your people, take them and go. I will send an angel before you to drive out these nations. But the Lord says, if I go, I might destroy you on the way. Now here's something to keep in mind as we are going over these passages, especially within these narrative portions of Scripture, that any outside influence that seems to influence the decision of God is that which has been ordained of God. It has been ordained of God that Moses would intercede on behalf of the people. The Lord doesn't change his mind, but when the situation changes, as he has decreed it, then the Lord focuses on the situation as it has changed. So he himself does not change. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't see a better plan. He has ordained the means in which he carries out his will. Because Moses is a type of Christ in the sense that he is mediating between the people and these particular things that God has has decreed for Moses is signifying or demonstrating what the Lord Jesus himself would do when he comes in his incarnation and when he ascends back into heaven to be our mediator. That is an important factor to understand. The Lord does not repent. He does not change his mind. He is not a man that he should repent. That's what he says in his word. So the means that God has ordained in order to bring about his will is the prayers and intercessory prayers of his people. That's why it is such a privilege to be part of the means in which God brings about his will within this world. The means by which he does that is the prayers of his people. It's pretty amazing. Not only has he declared the end, but he's declared the means on how to get to the end. Why? Because he is a sovereign God. And he is in control over it all. So we need to keep that in mind when it comes to passages like this. In which we question, well did he change his mind? What's he meaning he's not going up? 
But then he ends up going. So did he change his mind? No. These are not only descriptions of God himself showing his displeasure over idolatry and his displeasure at sin using human means and human human phrases and, and all of that that we can understand the displeasure of God because he's not stoic. He's not emotionless. God has mo- emotion. God has, you know, <clears throat> he, he, he gets angry. He's, he, he's joyful. Those emotions are in the very being of God. So we don't look at him like he's a robot and that he's just stoic in the sense of nothing. It doesn't matter what the situation is. He has this, this one emotion. By this kind of language that is used in the narrative portions of Scripture, it gives us an even greater insight into the displeasure of God when it comes to things like sin and idolatry of his very people. That was interesting. Came out of that speaker, didn't it? Did anybody? Somebody forgot to bound Satan, didn't they? You forgot to bind him. Somebody get on that. But these are understand. This, these are ways that we can understand the displeasure of God when it comes to idolatry that occurs and the sin that occurs against Him. So these are important passages because it does give us an even greater insight into the very character of God, into the very heart of God. So Moses is going to intercede on behalf of the people. And he's going to intercede by reminding the Lord of this people that he has called out, this people that he has chosen out of all the nations of the earth to be his people and for him to be their God. What would the nation say? to hear that God has done all these amazing wonders within Egypt and he's brought them out by a mighty hand only to be destroyed by a smaller nation when they get into the promised land. So Moses is saying, if you're not going with us, we're not going. He's not being irreverent, but he is acknowledging this very thing that without you, we are nothing. If you don't go with us, then we are not set apart from the nations that, that, that you will bring your wrath upon. The nations who are in darkness. And so he, he says to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. So Moses is, is entreating the Lord. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he, meaning the Lord, says back to Moses, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. So the Lord does say to Moses, my presence shall go with you. What is it that Moses is needing? He's needing assurance. That's what he's needing. He's lacking assurance throughout this whole ordeal. He's basically saying to the Lord, if I have really found favor in your sight, if I have been called to lead this people, then then don't leave me at uncertainty. I need to know that you are coming with me. Because without you, what are we? We're not distinguished anymore. 
Because the scripture makes that very clear. What other nation is like Israel who, who has the Lord their God? All the rest of the nations are they're in darkness. They're in idolatry. Israel has been the nation that God has chosen, not out of anything that was good intrinsically in them, but simply because God chose to extend his love to this group and to make himself known to this specific people out of all the nations of the earth. That's what made them unique. And in the, and in the time in which they're, they're not the biggest nation, the Lord had made very clear in Deuteronomy 7, it's not because you're, you're greater than any other. You're actually one of the smallest. But because of that very reality, because of that fact, that's what made them, again, unique. And that's what made or ascribed even greater uh, glory to God by the people is because they shouldn't have been in existence. They shouldn't have been able to go against the nations that they did and come out victorious. But they did because the Lord their God was with them. So that distinguished them above all the rest. And so Moses, Moses is, is petitioning the Lord. If I have found favor in your sight, if I, if I have found that, that grace in your sight, make known to me your ways. Make known to me the way that, that we're going. Make known to me who you are. Let me see into the innermost being of who you are that I can have even greater assurance that your presence is going with us. Will your presence not go with us because this obstinate people becomes obstinate again? Perhaps that's what he's, that's what he's thinking. The Lord has brought out this people with a mighty hand. And as the Lord says, they're an obstinate people. They're a stiff-necked people. They're a rebellious people. And on account of the idolatrous act that they had just committed, this is where the Lord says, I'm not going. And so the Lord says, my presence will go with you. Moses is saying, I don't want to be uncertain. I want to know you even more. I want to, to have that assurance that you're, you're going to be with us. If this people rebels again, what will happen? Will you then say, I'm not going with you? These are the things perhaps Moses is thinking in his mind. That's why he keeps petitioning the Lord. And the Lord says, I'm going to go with you. But he, he, keeps, he keeps asking of the Lord because he needs that assurance. Do not leave me in the uncertainty of your intentions. So, the passage tells us as Moses is petitioning the Lord, the Lord says to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. On account of Moses, and on account of the grace that God has extended to Moses, that grace that is overflowing to the rest of the people, the Lord says again, I will do this thing, that I have said. You have found favor in my sight and I have known you by name. But then he makes a very extraordinary request. A request really that no other has made. Others have seen the very glory of God 
in the Scripture. But some of these others did not ask for it. And in the moment that it happened, when Isaiah sees it, what does Isaiah say? I'm ruined. I'm coming apart. Peter says, depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. The apostle John falls at his feet like a dead man. He passes out at the mere sight of the glorious risen Christ. Moses says, show me your glory. Moses asks the Lord, show me your glory. He wants to know even more of the essential being of the Lord as God. And it's very interesting what the Lord says here. Moses says, I pray you, show me your glory. And he, the Lord, said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. He says, I will make all my goodness to pass by you. He, he's, he's not trying to, to diminish what Moses is asking or to somehow reinterpret what Moses is asking, to play word games with Moses. He is saying, you want to see my glory, then I'm going to make my goodness to pass by you. Why? And he's going to proclaim the name of the Lord? Why? Well, for the very reason we were talking about a moment ago. When you think about all the gods of the people, they are very stoic. They're not moved by the pain and the suffering of the people. They're very immoral within their mythologies. And Moses asking the Lord, show me your glory. The Lord is saying, this is what distinguishes the true God, me, above every other. Because I'm going to make my goodness to pass by you, which is synonymous with his glory. And it's very interesting as well, very amazing what he says. When he, when he says, I will proclaim the name of the Lord, that's all capitals, I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Now, he just said in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when he is expressing to Moses his very character and his nature, he says, I am who I am. And here he says, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It's like it's a play on words in which the Lord has first declared his very being. I am the self-existent one. And this is what I do. Just as he is the self-existent one in Exodus chapter 3, he is the one who exists. He is the independent one. He's the self-sufficient one. He is the immutable one. He's the, he's the unchangeable God. He is the sovereign God who needs nothing to be who he is. So too when he says, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, that is part of his name. And he is declaring that there are no outside influences that make me to be compassionate on whom I will be compassionate. 
It is by His very nature that He chooses to be compassionate on whom He will be compassionate. That is His name. And in so doing, He is expressing that He is sovereign and that He is free to do what He chooses. In the very freedom of God, He does not give up to man. The very free will of God, He does not give up to man. In the time in which God gives up This freedom to man, he is no longer the God of Scripture. Because what makes him the God of Scripture is his sovereign free will to do whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth. That's that's the very thing he's expressing. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And he's saying it to Moses in light of all the idolatry that's just happened. It's not anything that has to do with you That will make me be compassionate to you. There is nothing good in you that would merit me to be compassionate to you. I will be compassionate on whom I will be compassionate. It is his free and sovereign choice to be compassionate on whom he will. And no outside influences can ever influence him to choose one way or the other. Because in man, there is... No good thing. And so in his very name, he is expressing that very, that very truth that he is sovereign. He is free. He is independent. He needs nothing. He needs no one to be who he is. He chooses to extend mercy because he decides to do so. He tells Moses... You cannot see my face and live. And so he tells Moses of a place in which he will hide him. He will allow Moses to see what a finite being can see and live. But there's going to be some buffers there. Not only is he going to hide him in the cleft of the rock, not only is he going to put his hand over him until he fully passes by, not only is the Lord going to descend in a cloud and consume the mountain that through the thickness of the cloud, that's going to be a buffer for Moses as well. These are the things, the graces of God that he is doing to Moses that Moses may behold just some of the greatness and the splendor of who he is. He doesn't get to see him face to face as, as far as a visible manifestation of God. Not to the fullest extent. Had he seen visible manifestations of God? Yes. But to the extent that he's asking... You cannot see my face and live, he says. This is the king of kings who dwells in unapproachable light. This is the king surrounded by the very brilliance that we call the glory of God, which is, as one theologian said, the glory of God, the brilliance of light that surrounds his very being is his holiness put on display that causes the very seraphim that fly mid-heaven to be literally on fire with his glory, that it consumes them that much. One theologian said it would be much easier for us to try to walk barefoot on the sun than to stand in the presence of the living God and to have the veil pulled back to see the full-on glory of God. So the Lord is going to set buffers for Moses. He's going to hide him in the cleft of the rock. Moses, the next day, He cuts two stone tablets 
Similar like the former ones, he's going to carry them back up because the Lord is once again going to write on the tablets the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> so verse 4 of chapter 34, the Scripture tells us, So he cut out two stone tablets like the former ones, and Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and he took two stone tablets in his hand. Here it is. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. As he is in this act of worship, he hides him in the cleft of the rock. He places his hand over him. He has come down in the thickness of the cloud. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed. Luther calls this the sermon on the name of the Lord. The Lord's sermon on his own name. The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed. He preached his name. The Lord. Yahweh. The self-existent one. The Lord God. Yahweh El. El is the name God. The mighty one. The one who has all power, who has all strength. He doesn't do some type of a visible demonstration to, to manifest his name in that kind of a way to Moses. He doesn't cause some cosmic event to occur in the very presence of Moses. He doesn't cause a star to come down and to go back up. He doesn't make the earth shake or the mountain to be removed and to be set back to demonstrate his might and his power, his infinite power. No. He, proclaimed, he proclaims his name, and this is what he says. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. This is peeling back the veil to see the very essence of the very being of God. To see His innermost nature. His innermost character. He is compassionate. He's slow to anger. He abounds in loving kindness. That, that's that said, that loyal love. That faithful love. Abounds in loving kindness and truth. He's the gracious God. The one who is full of goodness and only good. This is distinguishing him above all the gods of the earth, all the gods of the people. This God does not lose his, his temper in the same way that a human does as the gods of the people. This God is not indifferent to the pain and the suffering of His people as the gods of the people are. This God needs nothing. And yet, in His mercy and in His grace, He extends these very qualities to sinners. Because all of this compacted together is expressing the ideas of grace. That's what it's showing us. Of the grace of God. The Old Testament scholars... Kyle and Dillich, here's what they say. 
And accordingly, all the words which the language contained to express the idea of grace and its varied manifestations to the sinner are crowded together here to reveal the fact that in his inmost being, God is love. But in order that grace may not be perverted by sinners into a ground of wantonness, justice is not wanting even here with its solemn threatenings, although it only follows mercy to show that mercy is mightier than wrath and that holy love does not punish until sinners despise the riches of the goodness, patience, and long-suffering of God. All these ideas of grace are expressing that God is love. That's what he's proclaiming to Moses. He's the sovereign one. He's the one who does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth and nobody influences him to be who he is or to choose the things that he does. He's the immutable God, the independent one who extends graces to rebellious people on account of nothing in them but all according to his own gracious nature. That's what he's telling Moses. This is the answer to Moses's Moses' question. This is the answer to Moses' lack of assurance. I'm gracious on whom I will be gracious, and I choose to be gracious, and no one else influences me. There is no people, regardless of how obstinate they are or how stiff-necked that they are, will determine whether or not I will be gracious to them. Because he's sovereign. And he is free. He's not bound by any limitations of man. He's not bound by any decisions of man. He is gracious by his very nature. He is loved by his very nature. And from even the Old Testament times, the very love that exists among the Godhead is, is expressed to us even in the Old Testament through passages like this to express to us that God is love. It's not a love that is one that allows for sin and iniquity. It's not a, just an arbitrary idea of love because he does make it very clear. He abounds in loving kindness and truth who keeps loving kindness for thousands. There is an overflowing amount of grace and love toward not just thousands of people, but the idea here is Thousands and thousands of generations. A love that doesn't run out. Who will keep us from the love of God? The persecution, tribulation, distress. I'm convinced, Paul says, nothing is able to keep us from the love of God because God has infinite overflowing love upon whom he chooses to grant it to. He says, though, he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. The idea of forgiving is that of, of lifting off. He lifts off the burden that weighs us down. And he rids us of it. However, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. By no means, he says, 
will he leave the guilty unpunished. Those who despise his name and teaches the next generations to despise his name. Those who despise the riches of God's grace, they don't get a pass. He says, they will by no means be left unpunished. As Steve Lawson says, all sin is going to be dealt with. No sin will go unpunished. It will either be punished in hell or pardoned in Christ. There is no other. For those that spurn the name of Christ, who trample him underfoot, trample the grace underfoot that he extends to sinners, they will by no means be left unpunished, for God is a consuming fire. But as these scholars had pointed out, the grace and the mercy come first before the wrath. Because the mercy and grace is mightier than the wrath. Our God is a gracious and merciful God who is only good. And throughout all of this, we're seeing His, His goodness put on display so that when we come to those passages and we, we read of the goodness of God is what leads you to repentance. It's His very character and His very nature that is on display for you that leads you to repentance. That's why Nahum says, for the Lord is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble and he knows those who take refuge in him. The goodness of God is, is synonymous here with his glory and his glory is displayed in his sovereignty and his freedom in his, his own decisions of being compassionate on whom he will be compassionate, of being gracious, of extending loving kindness, of withholding judgment. His glory is on display. And these are things that he is saying to Moses. These are things he's proclaiming to Moses. Now Moses is privileged as the Lord passes by, as the Lord is covering his hand over Moses, that Moses is, is able to see his back, is what it's referred to as his back, which is the reflection of his glory. Not him, but the reflection of his glory that is what Moses sees. And upon seeing just the reflection of his glory, Moses has to veil his face, when he comes down to the mountain, because even being in that immediate presence of God, his face is shining with the very glory of God. But as amazing as that is, and the knowledge of God that is being given to Moses in these very words, there is no greater revelation of God in his nature and in his character than in Christ Jesus, which even surpasses this very demonstration of God's glory. When you think of Christ, you're thinking of the glory of God veiled in human flesh. Again, the Christian faith is not driven by visual manifestations or visual occurrences or visual events at all. When you think of the Lord Jesus Christ, He has no stately form that we should desire Him. But through everything that He says, through everything that He does you see the glory of God put on display even more so to demonstrate the very character, the gracious character, and the, the very infinite love of God that is found in the face of Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that the glory that Moses had to veil his face with 
faded. He wasn't lasting. But us beholding the unveiled glory in the face of Christ is everlasting. Throughout his names, we see his character. We see his very nature. And some of these things we don't like to look at and we don't like to to admit sometimes when it comes to his sovereign free choice to do as he pleases. We don't like to think sometimes that, that God doesn't owe us anything, no matter how good that we perceive ourselves to be. We don't like that. We like to think that we're good enough that God is extending grace to us. And in fact, we're not. The Lord sovereignly bestows it upon whom he will. And the very thing that you see in that is sovereign, unconditional election of God. This is big God theology. This is not small God theology, a small God who is at the whims of man. This is a God in whom declares the end from the beginning and man's free will stops at God's sovereign will, not the other way around. Now, passages like this should, should give us an even greater glimpse into his character and his nature to produce certain responses from us. A response of awe, of viewing the glory of God in such a way. The importance of God's grace and His gracious character should be something that we behold. Because we think of God, we think of Names for God that He's the Almighty God and He's the Mighty God. He's the one who speaks creation into existence by the very word of His power. He, can, he upholds the entire universe. And we think of things like that, that, oh, that is such a, an amazing manifestation of, the, of God's glory and His power. And sometimes we diminish the very character of God when it comes to His gracious nature that is the very sum of His glory according to this passage. Something to behold is His love, His grace, and His mercy that produces humility in us. We see just what a big God He is. It produces in us, as, as Piper says, a hope. A hope not only for us, but a hope for those that are lost. That even though they may be obstinate, stiff-necked, God will have compassion on whom He will have compassion. And when the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit takes out a heart of stone and gives a heart of flesh, regardless of who they once were, they will call upon the name of the Lord. Because the sovereign God is decreed. No doubt, knowing these things gave Moses hope as he's going to have to lead this people for the next 40 years, this particular generation. He's going to have to perform a lot of funerals. You understand that within a whole 40 years, an entire generation of people are going to die because they are not permitted to go into the promised land because of their unbelief. So going through all the, the trials that Moses will be going through, 
having that assurance of God's presence with him and knowing the very name of God. That intimacy that Moses is now able to have with God because God has proclaimed this to him. That in itself is a great encouragement for us as we enter into this world and as we walk through this world to know that the very presence of God is with his people and God is the one who upholds us and enables us to endure whatever comes in this life. And to know that as we proclaim, the Spirit empowers and God performs all his good pleasure. This gives us hope, gives us encouragement, gives us a greater awe as we behold the glory of God. I pray that we all would, in our prayer time, have the boldness to pray as Moses did. Show me your glory. That is a prayer that we need to pray. Because in the time that we can pray unto the Lord, show me your glory, it's through the pages of Scripture by the Spirit of God applied to our hearts that gives us a greater understanding of the very nature and character of God. Our God is good. Our God is gracious. And our God's presence is always with us. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we again thank you for all that you are, all that you do. And Father, thank you for this portion of your word. How wonderful it is. And I pray, Father, for all of us here that we would indeed see the majesty of our Lord to an even greater extent, the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the fullest revelation of who you are. Help us, Father, not only to live in a way that honors you, but help us to, to spend more time in prayer, to, to dwell and to consider the things of, of what we read in Scripture of, of who you are that the Spirit of God would grant us an even greater understanding of you, thereby bringing us even, even more so into a closer relationship to you. Help us to delight in you even more, Father. Through the pages of your word, let us see your glory. To you be the praise, the glory, and the honor in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for your attention. You are dismissed.